Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we we really make people mad sometimes. Um, I am your host, Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me is the co-host, Karen Peterson. Hi. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> were, you, were you whoopsing about the fact that we sometimes make people mad or... yes yes i was like oops my bad sorry <laughs> you made me respond to those people i forced you, you forced me oh, and man. then it turned into a whole thing and apparently i'm a homophobe now i'm i don't even understand anymore we won't go into that uh i yeah i i do think that you can agree with people that that are gay and not be homophobic if you're not being homophobic about disagreeing with them my problem isn't that they're gay my problem is that they're dumb Uh. (laughs) Uh, yeah well my problem was that i feel like there's a lot of inference happening like Mm -hmm. and this is something that i deal with a lot in my life um is where people will make assumptions about why i'm saying something or what my intention is behind a, a decision or an action or a statement. And then they'll just make a lot of assumptions about me based on what they think I'm saying. And it's not what I'm saying at all. And that was, that was very much an example of that. It turned yeah. into like, it went from disagreeing with someone and, and, and trying to say like, Hey, this is, This is something I see a lot of people do. I didn't, I wasn't that explicit about my point, but I didn't think that I needed to be. And then it just went really off the rails and, and, uh, very, very quickly. Very quickly. It did. I, I, I admittedly, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by this kind of thing anymore because we've spent enough time on the internet to know how these things go. But there are times where I'm just like, I don't know how we got here and I would like to leave, please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's always interesting. And I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday who once again, and this is not the first time I've heard it, but people say like that I'm intimidating or I scare them. And that always makes me so sad because I feel like I am such a, like, I feel like I'm such a pushover in so many ways. Like I'll stand my ground for something that I really, really, truly feel strongly about, but I am... <laughs> I'm so nice. <laughs> I really am. And I feel like, at least I think I am. And so it makes me sad when, when people make assumptions that I'm not, or or that I say or do something in such a way that makes them think that I'm not, because that's just, that's just I, not me. I mean, to be, now I'm, I, I this is definitely coming from a, a woman who's been called same thing intimidating scary and very often it seems to be complimentary it's like oh you frightened me it's like yeah okay (laughs) good um but but i I think that there is definitely a gendered aspect to it that any any woman particularly who's 
outspoken about anything really, or is unafraid to say, you know, this is what I think, regardless of what it is actually about, if it's complimentary, negative, anything like that, um, very often gets then labeled like, oh, you're scary, you're intimidating, you know, you, you say what you think, which a, a lot of women have been conditioned, we've been conditioned for a long time to mm-hmm. not yeah. say what we think, to not to be conciliatory, to not say, to not disagree when we actually disagree. Right. And, um, and I think that that's where it comes from. It's less that like, oh, you're intimidating and more like you're doing things that I don't expect and I don't know how to react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that can, that can come from both men and women. So oh, it's, definitely. Yeah. I take it as a compliment, to be honest. Like I'm personally at the point where I'm like, so it's like, you frightened me. It's just like, good. Good. I want you to be scared. In some ways, yeah. Scare me. (laughs) In some ways, it definitely is something that I'm like, all right, good. I'm glad that I'm glad that they look at me that way because then that's you know that gives me some power and some authority in in different situations. What 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 makes me sad is when people avoid me or think that they can't be my friend or they don't they don't think I want to be their friend because I'm I scare them. And that, that makes me sad. I, I, I empathize. I do. <laughs> yeah. I know the feel. So that is our psychological kind of discussion for the day. <laughs> um, we're not scary. Like, we're not. Like, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess if you don't like people that are, are willing to say, hey, I like this, I don't like this, you know, this is what I think, then maybe we are, but I, I don't think we are. Um, you don't scare me, to, to be honest, so. <laughs> you sometimes, in the beginning, used to scare me a little bit. <laughs> See, this because... is the problem. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, but then I got to know you, and I was just like, oh, you're not scary. You're just very smart. Which honestly can be scary to people who are not smart. Thank you. you. Well, for the Mutual mutual Appreciation Society, I I think (laughs) we're good. Um, Yeah. So just like to everyone, just like you're not actually frightened of us. You're just intimidated by our brilliance. That's That's right. That's That's what this is. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're very nice otherwise. Um, before we get into the the main topic of this episode, um, which is going to be about documentaries and biopics and uh, issues with critiquing those, because we're still talking about film criticism in these past few episodes, um, I did want to mention a couple of things that happened this week, uh, some of them kind of funny, some of them less funny. Um, to start out with, uh, there was an, now- an announcement that kind of just broke social media for a little while that I found very funny because I do not have a horse in this race at all um, other than the fact that there are a couple of actors that I really don't like. Um, Chris Pratt has been cast as uh, the voice of Mario from Super Mario Brothers (laughs) um, in a a new, I think it's a new animated film. He's not actually playing a live action Mario. We've already gone that route and it was bizarre. Um, it is not a good film, R.I.P. Bob Hoskins. <laughs> we love you, Bob Hoskins. You're the goat, but also, I don't even know what that was. Like, <laughs> it's great in some ways, and in other ways, it's terrifying. You know, at bottom of um, a new house, it's fine. <laughs> it's just so that film is just so off of the off the rails. It really is just like. 
I mean, you kind of look at it, you go like, yeah, it makes sense. Okay, a live action version of this really popular video game. Okay, mm -hmm. sure. And then you actually see it and actually like, oh my God, why? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> this is the worst idea. Mm -hmm. um, so so with, with Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt has been um, uh, disliked for some time. You know, there there have been all these debates about the best and the worst Chris. He is usually labeled as the worst Chris. Um, and a lot of this actually has nothing to do with the screen persona, but to do with some of the, the personal things that we know about him and don't like about him. Generally, I find him dull. At this point, I just don't care about watching him on screen. He kind of has the same shtick for everything that he does. And, and I'm, not, I'm not into that. It's, it's very boring to me. But I did find it quite funny that there were a lot of very strong opinions about Chris Pratt and playing Mario. And also from also the, the fact that Jack Black has been cast <laughs> as the villain. He's been cast as Bowser, right? <laughs> um, I never played Super Mario Brothers. I do not know what I'm talking about half the time. I know that there's that Princess Peach is kidnapped and Mario has to save her. That that's and she's story. in another castle. Yeah, and like she's always to, in another castle. And Mario and Luigi are plumbers. Yes, and and that's a thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but of course, this this kind of launched a lot of people being like, what's really ridiculous about this is anyone thinking that Princess Peach would not go for Jack Black, but would go for Chris Pratt. Like, a lot of people were like, if Jack Black, like, kidnaps me from Chris Pratt, I am down for it. <laughs> so, Thank you know, you. you've rescued me, Bowser. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's just like, guys, like, we all know Jack Black is, is, you know, husband goals um chris pratt is like the dude that you kind of thought was nice but then turns out to be a total dick like that's mm -hmm. basically what he is so yeah also he's not italian which is a prerequisite obviously for <laughs> doing the voice of mario who is obviously an italian he is an italian plumber yes <laughs> i just wanted to mention this because i thought the whole thing was really funny especially the intensity with which a lot of people reacted to to this news yeah and well and someone else made a good point that it feels like they're just trying to remake the lego movie with this and because i don't know if yeah. they're gonna have other characters and and stuff from different nintendo worlds that's very possible uh, or it could just stay with... I mean, there's so much within the world of just Mario um, that it, it could just stay in that. And the thing is, like, if that's what they're trying to do and that's why they cast Chris Pratt, they really missed the point on why the Lego movie worked. It was not because of him. It was because of all the blending of, of different, you know, nostalgic um, properties mm -hmm. and so many IPs and franchises from decades of, of cinema and television and games and all that kind of stuff. That's why that worked. Yeah, it, it reminds me also of Wreck-It Ralph a little bit, um, mm -hmm. where you've got, you know, this kind of, and it's a question of how they're going to, I mean, are they going to treat this as like a video game that, or are they going to treat it as, you know, this, this in-world kind of universe, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, Mario's a cartoon. Like, it, this, this is, this is a this is silly, right? Mm -hmm. At some level, it's silly. It's weird. It's a very bizarre concept for a game, generally. Yeah. Um, 
yeah it it feels like i don't know the the excitement is ridiculous i feel like that this is going to be another sonic the hedgehog where we're just like what is happening and why you know <laughs> um yeah but we'll see yeah and one of the things with the, with the lego movie is that chris pratt was actually good in that in that part because he's the character is an everyman right it's right. the sort of it's the bland white guy to be honest you know i know that it's it's cartoons and everything but still it's the bland white guy um and he's very good at playing that right and he he's got that that sort of sarcastic humor and and all of that but that's really what he is that has nothing to do with mario no no but oh well it's gonna happen uh, anyways, how it is. so so yeah, we get to hear that. There have been already a number of memes that have been released based upon all of this. That is mm-hmm. like quite quite amusing. Uh, so yes. <laughs> yes, move, moving on to something slightly more serious, um, there was a a recent it was a recent press conference actually at the San Sebastian Film Festival. Um, in in which Johnny Depp, who is receiving an award, I, I just <laughs> giving wanna... a speech for receiving an award, yeah, in public. I, I want want to like emphasize this that he's re- he is at a film festival receiving an award, and talked about how cancel culture is like destroying lives and um, and how no one is safe. Uh, it's so far out of hand now that I can promise you that no one is safe, not one of you, as long as, as long as someone is willing to say one sentence. It takes just one sentence and there is no more ground the carpet has been pulled. Now, beyond the fact that at least in the Variety article that is being quoted, um, a lot of what he says is, is almost nonsensical, which concerns me a great deal. But, you know, talking about this whole issue of cancel culture, and of course he's not directly addressing the fact of, you know, the re- the issues that he has been dealing with, like the fact that he's been accused of abuse, the the fact that he keeps on losing court cases, mm-hmm. uh, and some of kind of the reaction to to him being cast in films, particularly in the the Harry Potter films, the Fantastic Beast films, um, you know, it, it is again where it's it's one of those times where you're like, oh look, uh, a rich Hollywood celebrity who's receiving an award is complaining about being canceled that's mm-hmm. that's wild to me like it's, and yeah go on well it's the same thing you see with like people going on certain news stations and complaining that they've been canceled while they're while they're hawking their latest book you know and it's like who canceled you exactly because it seems like for someone who's been canceled you're still everywhere yeah, exactly. No. It's like I'm being silenced. You say yeah. as you give a speech on a on a major news network. Exactly. exactly. It's, it's very weird, but I I think that it it does point out, and a couple of people pointed this out when the the Johnny Depp um, this interview came out, um, which is that celebrities obviously believe that being criticized is tantamount to being canceled, right? So having their and one of the things that is going on with Johnny Depp is is the fact that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the allegations that have been made against him um and and that has kind of spurred this this feeling of like you know we don't really want to see him in movies anymore Mm -hmm. but it's like that there are a number of celebrities who believe that they are entitled to the public's attention that they're entitled to be beloved 
right? And so when they're criticized for their own behavior, right? And Depp has a lot more problems than just some of the allegations against him. Mm-hmm. He's he's become notoriously difficult to work with. There are a lot of places that are just dropping him, not because he's been canceled or whatever, but because he is just not worth it anymore. His box office draw is dropping. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's like he and a lot of a lot of celebrities like him obviously believe that they are entitled to the attention and the accolades and the roles that they're not being given anymore because of their own behaviors. So that's that's what I, I think a, a lot of this is coming from. Yeah, I think about someone like Val Kilmer, who was at the height of his career in the late 80s and into the into the early 90s, but he was notoriously difficult to work with. Certain directors, like Tim Burton, said they would never work with him again. And he later owned that. He later said, you know what? Yeah, I let this all go to my head. I was an asshole. I deserved what happened to me. And he turned it around. And now, even though he really is in a situation after his cancer and everything where he can't really do a lot of acting, like, he has he has reclaimed that, that beloved status because he owned his crap and he made amends for it. And Johnny Depp could do the same thing if he wanted to. Yeah. Well, I, you think of someone like Robert Downey Jr., yeah. right, who has had many ups and downs in his career. Yeah. But a lot of it is, a lot of the ups and downs have been a direct result of his drug addictions and his, and his relapsing into that. And he's been very public about that. Mm-hmm. And it's been very much like, this has been a problem that I have had to deal with and that I have had to take care of. And now he's in a place where, you know, he... He does. He never has to work again. The man has plenty of money, but he yeah. is a huge box office draw, right? Iron Man was a huge thing for him. A lot of uh, uh, they had to fight to get him that role because he was so notoriously undependable, because mm-hmm. he had suffered so much in terms of in the eyes of the public because of his addictions. But none of that was like, oh, it's everybody else's fault. It's like right. no, it's his fault. It's his. It's his problem. It's his addiction, etc. And it's something that he was able to work through and eventually come out the other side of. And now he's he's you know massively popular. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that there are some much deeper problems that Johnny Depp has right now that um, he might be able to overcome. It's beyond ego, right? Um, yeah. But that it, he might be able to overcome. I hope he does. He might not. And, uh, and, but that's really what it comes down to. It's personal responsibility at some level. Yeah. Um, not, you know, whatever cancel culture is that, that term doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. Well, and, and I just like go back to that profile that was done. Was it in Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone? I can't remember. Rolling Stone. A, a yeah, couple years really ago. Sad. Yeah, it was really sad. And it was, it was so, um, it was so indicative of what's really going on. And so it's like all these court cases and things are because they're a direct result of him sitting in his house by himself, completely isolated because he has done that to himself and making up all these stories in his mind about what really happened and how he wasn't at fault. And he's really the victim. And if he could let that go, he could turn things around, but he does, he, he is unable to see past that. And 
And that's where that's where the real problem is. And I think that that's what really is going on with a lot of people who feel like they have been canceled is what they can't see is that they have canceled themselves. Yeah. Yeah. None of all of this has been about their behavior. All of it. Like oh, pretty much everybody who, who has gone through this stuff has been about like, oh, you raped a woman. You abused someone. You were you were an asshole. Right. You know, Val Kilmer, you were a jerk. Uh, and, and of course, you know, we always kind of bulk when, when we talk about people that are difficult, right. Particularly when it comes to women. Um, and, and I think that it it is, you know, you should always take it with a grain of salt when someone says, oh, they're notoriously difficult. Okay. What does that, what does that mean exactly? Right. Yeah. And who is the one saying this about them? Yeah, exactly. But it's quite obvious that Depp has issues. And, um, and uh, you know, I've, I've said before, it's sad to me, especially, I love him. Like, I, I love Captain Jack. I love some of his earlier roles. I love Cry Baby and Benny and June. And he really was for a while, I think one of the best actors of his generation. And, yeah. and he could still be that, that, that could happen again. Um, he is still very compelling to watch. Watching him in um, Murder on the Orient Express, he's a compelling actor. Um, but he has obviously so many issues and so many personal demons, and and he he's just he's doing the wrong things. And like I I want him to to you know get help and get better and own up to the fact of, of some of the things that he's done. I I don't see that happening right now. Yeah. I think he's just going to drink himself to death and, and that's going to be that. And it's going to just be the end of a very sad story. Yeah, it, it's, it's very, it's very sad. It's very sad. And like several people have been like, look, you're not supposed to, you played Hunter S. Thompson. You're not supposed to emulate Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> yeah, Even exactly. Hunter S. Thompson was like, hey, nobody should emulate me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just this like, something to aspire to. Here. Yeah, it's just like, I can do this. Don't you do this. This is a bad idea for other people to do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, so yeah, John, Johnny Depp is, is upset about being canceled, um, even though he's he's still winning awards. Um, moving on to, to our main topic uh, for today, and I think that this kind of does relate to cancel culture in some ways and the way that we perceive people. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about criticism of documentary and biopics. And I'm going to let Karen start off because she kind of proposed this topic. And I think it's a really interesting one. But but Karen, you know, what, what did you want to discuss today? Yeah, so the reason I wanted to talk about this, especially after the last couple of weeks when we've been talking more specifically about certain areas of film criticism, is because one thing that I see happen a lot is that and this is not a judgment on anyone. Um, this is like, hey, let's let's talk about this this situation. But I see where people tend to judge, evaluate, critique documentaries and biopics based on the subject matter and not really on the film itself. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what the difference is and how we can how we can be true to one while also being honest about the other, I guess, is is kind of where I was going with that. Um, and so, like, I think about certain docs, like, Won't You Be My Neighbor from a couple years ago, that everyone fell in love with, and there was so much expectation that it was going to win the Oscar for 
best documentary feature. It didn't end up even getting nominated. And then there was this big outcry over that. And for me, as someone who didn't grow up watching Mr. Rogers, I watched it and went, well, this is a fine documentary, but this isn't anything special. You know, to me, it was a pretty standard documentary about a beloved person. And that didn't make it a bad documentary. It just made it not anything that really stood out, especially in a year of contenders that was, you know, what it was. And so that's the kind of thing where I think that's that's just an example of where people get so wrapped up in their love or their appreciation or their admiration or their anger over the subject of the story. And they don't step, they, they're either they don't want to or they just can't step outside of that and look at, you know, evaluate the piece as a whole. How is this story told? What does the cinematography look like? Who are they talking to? Are they recreating things? Are they, is it just talking head interviews? You know, that kind of thing. And, and so anyway, that's, that's what I was wanting to, to talk about a little bit. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you, but wouldn't, wouldn't we say that, that one of the things that certain kinds of docu- documentaries generally, uh, and film generally is, is meant to elicit empathy it's meant to elicit emotional reactions mm-hmm. so something like won't you be my neighbor one of the things that it, it does and it's definitely appealing to people who grew up with mr rogers yeah um i i absolutely agree with that and i know that my reaction to that that documentary and to the the film um by mariel heller uh the feature film sorry not the right the <laughs> both of them are films um was was definitely shaped by the fact that I have these emotional memories, right, of watching Mr. Rogers as a very small child. Um, but isn't that kind of the the point? That's one of the things that the documentary is is trying to do. Is it's mm-hmm. trying to give you this emotional connection and reaction to this particular person it's not it's not being particularly critical although there are there are criticisms of some of the choices that mr rogers made um yeah no i no i agree i just i think when we're talking about a film like our our responsibility when like if we're reviewing something if we're critically evaluating something it's not just like what you know is this going to work for the audience you know it's it's our role isn't just to look at like, oh, this made me feel good. It's how how do they tell the story? It's 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 all of that. And yeah, and that's that's kind of where I was going. And I think that Mr. Rogers is a perfect example because we had Won't You Be My Neighbor, which was the documentary. And then we had A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which was the narrative story by Mariel Heller, where Tom Hanks played Fred Rogers. And it's funny because without having any connection really to Mr. Rogers, the narrative story connected for me so much better than the documentary mm-hmm. did. And I loved the film. I loved Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It made me sob and make me feel like, wow, I really missed out on something in a way that the documentary didn't. Well, and, and I think I think some of that is just a shift in um, 
I don't want to call documentary a genre, but it's it's a shift in medium and mm-hmm. to a certain degree, because you have the the documentary, which is approaching it from a, a slightly more distance perspective, right? You're showing the real people. You yeah. have real interviews with the pe- with the actual people who were involved, um, in addition to you know talking head interviews and things like that. So there is, I think, there is an assumption in going into that that you have some kind of connection to or understanding of Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. as a celebrity yeah. figure, right? Um, even if, you know, you don't necessarily, you didn't necessarily grow up with him, but you know who he is, you have some interest in him as a, as an individual, right? Um, whereas Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood really does dig into, and I, I agree, I think they're both great films in their own ways. Mm-hmm. Um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood definitely digs into the, it shows you why Mr. Rogers had this connection to people. Yeah. Why, how he was able to, and it's fictionalized, right? But it's also a true story. Um, how he was able to connect to people and to give people healing to, to you know, this, this whole question of non-toxic masculinity, of positive masculinity, of showing a different way of being male. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things I, I think the, the Mariel Heller's film did really well was to show that like these are men and this is something that men struggle with is is having these emotional connections being able to express their emotions beyond anger right and and being given permission to do that by other men and that's part of what i think she did really well in her depiction of mr rogers and in tom hanks performance of being like it's okay to feel these things Mm -hmm. and it's okay to be angry but it's also okay to be sad and to cry and to find joy in some of the things that you know that you remember from your childhood you remember from your past um yeah yeah well, so, so i think... understand i'm not saying what we would want you be my neighbor is in any way not a good movie that was not what i was saying at all it's just i think that that's a perfect example where yeah um what makes that work is people's connection to the subject more than this being like any particularly um, standout, incredible documentary, which is why when it came down to it, RBG ends up getting that slot in the Oscar race instead of Won't You Be yeah. My Neighbor, which they're basically the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about two different beloved people. Yeah, and, and it is interesting because our RBG, you know, obviously is it's a completely different level to, to Mr. Rogers. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that there is, when you come to, to someone like Ginsburg, you, there is a deeper, or not a deeper, a wider connection, Yeah. right? Everybody knows, everybody knows who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is. Mm-hmm. Everybody can see the strides that she made for, um, for women, right? You can, you can see that. Now, whether or not you like her is, is another question, but you know that she is an incredibly influential figure. Mr. Rogers is slightly different. It is more about nostalgia. It is more about that experience of being a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the things that Mr. Rogers kind of gave, gave to us as kids or didn't give to us as kids. If you didn't experience this, um, you wouldn't have the same degree of connection to it. Right. Yeah. So there are a lot of different types of documentaries. Um, Like we've talked about Talking Head, which that's not traditionally, you know, the the, the title or whatever, like the actual designation of it. But there's lots of different types. There's 
There's the kind where it's really taking kind of an omniscient, omnipresent approach where it's looking at a a subject, a complete story, a situation, and just like, this is, this is what happened. This is the the story from start to finish. Or um, we've seen documentaries that are very, um, not narrative, they're not narrative, but there's sort of a lyrical quality to them where like a lot of times they don't even use um, a lot of narration. It's mostly, mm-hmm. you know, images, music, that kind of thing. And then there's, there are observational where, uh, the storyteller, the filmmaker will be just kind of there with the camera not really interfering and just showing, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think of some examples for all of these, but, um, so, so when you're talking about the, the, the more, um, so, a really old example, Lendok of the North, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a, it's sort of a half, it's a sociological film, but also kind of an, almost a nature documentary. Yeah. Uh, and of course that, that has its own issues because we now know that Flaherty definitely um, uh, <laughs> staged some of those things. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, that, that like where you're removing the filmmaker as much as possible mm-hmm. from the narrative basically so you're the filmmakers presenting themselves as an observer it's journalistic almost an observational third party who is not passing judgment or making decisions particularly is just watching and showing you what they see Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so you know there's interviews or there's uh, documentaries that that involve interviews there's documentaries that just use like archival footage stitched together there's there's lots of difference there's there's feature films, there's short films, there's series, there's, um, you know, we've got a much talked about, I'm very excited to see it coming up, animated documentary called Flea that I'm really looking forward to, to catching. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of different types of documentaries. And so, and what I, what I have been really excited about in the last few years, especially is seeing just how far documentary filmmaking has come and how much it has changed and and how exciting it can be to watch um stories that maybe I wouldn't have thought much of like you know a couple months ago when we both watched the last Leonardo through um uh was it Tribeca yeah Yeah. I was like oh which festival was it (laughs) I was like it wasn't Telluride I didn't go to that (laughs) but uh yeah the last Leonardo where it's like okay it's a it's a documentary about a painting. All right, that sounds exciting. I like art movies, <laughs> so I thought I'd watch it. But it it is a talking head interview type story, and it uses you know a lot of of expert interviews. But it is one where it kind of becomes a thriller, you know. So it, that's where just to your point earlier about how documentary is really more of a medium, not a genre. Uh, it gets classified as a genre, but that's not really accurate because you can have documentaries that are love stories, that are thrillers, that are horror movies, that are comedies, that, you know, you can have all these different different types of, of genres blended into documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking. Well, and I'm always interested in the way that we, we... Documentaries are difficult in a lot of ways because there is this this sense that they're trying to get closer to to reality right what actually what actually happened right yeah the cinema verite um, yeah and and 
and also this whole idea of like the filmmaker removing themselves at some level, we do have this attitude that this is truth, right? The documentaries are representative of the truth as close right. as you can get to the truth. But of course, often a lot of films that we now call documentaries, I would used to be called and I would still call es our essay films, right? So films that have a particular thesis, right? And a good example is a lot of Michael Moore's documentaries. Um, those are documentaries, they are, discussing real life subjects, they are, they have talking head interviews, they have, um, you know, real life events, things like that. But they are very much geared and obviously geared towards a particular perspective. Um, and it's Michael Moore's perspective, you can agree with him, you can disagree with him, you can agree with part of it, you cannot agree with with a lot of it, but he's very involved, right, as a filmmaker, um, in talking about whatever his subject is. So, so he kind of proposes a thesis about gun control or about 9-11 or about, you know, Guantanamo Bay, et cetera, and, and goes with that. And that is what his thesis is. So those films are much more obviously take a particular perspective, but the truth is all documentaries take a particular perspective. And even those films where the filmmaker or the filmmakers, very often there's multiple filmmakers, right? seem to be distanced, seem to be just sort of showing the reality of whatever their subject is, aren't because they are making a choice. You have to make a choice about what stories you tell and what stories you don't, who you talk to, who, who refuses to talk to you, how things are cut, what you show in frame, what music you include, all of those things that go into making a film shape the way that the audience reacts to the documentary. And so it, it turns into this interesting question of like, is there is there such a thing as true documentary? <laughs> well, if you're looking for something that's just completely true, I would argue that there are very few things that are specifically true because most things are, you're gonna, like it totally depends on the person. You know, it totally yeah. depends on, you know, like, like you can talk to two different people who just saw the same thing or they just had an argument, for mm -hmm. example, and they're both going to tell you different things. And it doesn't mean that either of them is lying or being dishonest. It's like, that's the truth to them. And so that's where it's like, well, to someone, this is the truth. Yeah. And, and I think that um, the documentaries get, documentaries use that. There's, there's that assumed viewer. Right. Yeah. So for the, using the, the RBG documentary example, that has a, a very positive perspective on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I agree with that perspective. Right. There are people who don't agree with that perspective, mm -hmm. but the film assumes that you are meeting you are meeting it at a certain point. You're meeting it with this positive view of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, yeah. There have been documentaries made about Donald Trump that take a similar perspective right now. I, of course, I do not take that perspective, <laughs> but they're making an assumption about who is watching them and who the audience is for these films. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's always, it's always interesting. I did want to talk briefly about the, the Lula Rowe documentary. Yes. Let's, I talked to the producers yesterday. I'm so because because this, this is kind of, it's not, this isn't new, but I feel like that this kind of thing has become increasingly popular over the past few years. Mm -hmm. These kind of multi-part 
documentary dramas that are just this side of dateline in a lot of ways yeah. 2020 right i i remember one, one of my old roommates actually loved watching 2020 and after a while i had to stop because it's always like you know some young woman who's murdered on a hiking trail <laughs> or something like that you know who killed her and um and i, I finally had to stop doing that but that kind of a documentary right is very compelling because it's this intense real life story that is being told but the lula rich documentary is its own thing because it's it, superficially i even telling people about this film about i was always like so it's about this like leggings company <laughs> they make leggings and everyone has seen the leggings at some point right mm -hmm. um like even i was like i vaguely know about this remember it remember i actually it. have a couple because i had friends who sold it <laughs> I got the kind before they started falling apart and having okay. weird stuff in the crowd. That's 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 good. <laughs> um, yeah. So so this this film, which is a you know four part is whatever forty five minutes a piece, four part Amazon documentary series um, about this company that does and and it's it's very balanced. I think in a lot of ways, definitely what it presents is very balanced. It gives interviews with people that sold it the people that created the company um you know kind of shows all of these different perspectives and ultimately does kind of give the the viewer um the information it sort of says you know you kind of make a decision about who you want to believe who you don't want to believe but it's it's quite a trip i mean you so you just talk to the filmmakers what what did you what was yeah. your impression of this, Karen? I talked to uh, two of the producers. They were the two that actually got the ball rolling on it, hired the directors, um, and they worked really closely um, with the, the whole production from start to finish. And um, Corey and Bly are their names. Excuse me. And they are they're awesome. They're, they're these really fantastic women who um, just really... Uh, it started with, with um, Corey Shepard Stern. It started with her because she uh, she knew some people who had been in the company that had, like, were consultants um, or, uh, what do they call them, retailers. And she kind of had heard weird things about, about what was going on and started looking into it. And then she was talking to her partner uh, and, and friend, Bly Faust and the two of them really started just doing some some research on what was going on with this company and and how they were able to accomplish what they were and they just went there's a story here this is something that that really needs to come out because at this point there had been the big lawsuit from Washington State which is a big part of the series but there had also been a billion dollar lawsuit filed by some of the former retailers. And so that was kind of where they were like, we need to, we need to get involved in this. And so they hired the directors, which um, it was Jenna, Jenner first and Julia Willoughby Nason, who did one of the fire festival documentaries, which is really good. And um, so brought them in and then they just started contacting people and they, they told me, Corey and, and Bly told me, that most of the folks that they talked to were totally on board with sharing their story. There were some that definitely were afraid of legal retaliation and, and other stuff. But 
I asked specifically about getting Mark and Deanne, the founders of the company, like how hard was it to get them to sit down for an interview? And they were like, oh, no, they were all for it. They were like, yeah, we'd be happy to talk about it. And so it was things like that were just so shocking to me because it's like, did they, you know, I I was asking them, like, did they know what they were sitting down for? And, And it was just like, yeah, they just are so convinced that they haven't done anything wrong that they have nothing to hide and they're totally open to talk about it. Well, that is what that what the entire documentary is a study in that they're yeah. they're very self justifying. They're charming, right? I mm-hmm. I do think. I mean, especially in the initial episode where you kind of are introduced to them, it's like they have a charm to them. Yeah, and that you're kind of like I completely. To me, it's kind of like um, some of the Scientology documentaries uh-huh. <laughs> where where I'm just like I I get how people got sucked into this, you know, how this, and, and they're preying particularly on very particular things about, um, particularly about white womanhood, about motherhood in America. Um, and, and, and in some ways I, I almost want, you know, it's kind of like at the beginning, it's like, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt here a little bit. I think that they might have started out mm-hmm. with, a genuinely good idea with a genuine desire to kind of um, to to get women earning money, right? Hysteria yeah, home moms I think it accidentally money. became a billion dollar company. Yeah, I don't then, think they ever saw that happening. And the the documentary, I think, gives fair play to that, right? Sort of says like, you know, this spiraled out of control, basically. Yeah. And rather than pulling back and saying like, okay, we need to to keep this small. We this should not be becoming whatever this is um they just went with it and and eventually and at a certain point then you begin to get into some of the later episodes where you talk about this is a pyramid scheme right Mm -hmm. this is this is the definition of what a pyramid scheme is um and but you see how people get sucked into that but so the the structuring of the documentary i think is really interesting because it's instead of being a single film right it's it's episodic so you kind of you get the sort of rise and fall um in each episode you get the cliffhanger at the end you know what's going to happen next makes Um, you just have to click next episode yeah yeah exactly i mean i watched it much faster than i watch a lot of those kinds of series because i was like i really need to know what happens (laughs) um and it gets increasingly bizarre and kind of goes into places that i'm like i did not expect this so it, it turns into almost this thriller aspect of it right that this is very exciting even though we're still talking about a company that sells leggings like that's the that's what we're talking about but Mm -hmm. this is like gone beyond that it's turned into this cult right um and and i think that that kind of documentary filmmaking is really compelling and is is very well done because you've got this shift right that happens about part way through the that you start out with like, okay, I understand, like I get why people would do this. It seems kind of reasonable, you know, and then you're like, wait a minute, it's going into a place that I didn't expect it to go. Yeah. Um, and and that is is definitely the entertainment value I think that we get from a lot of these these films. It isn't plotting and ser- and super serious. There's a humor to it. Yeah. And, There's... and a thrilling aspect to it. Right. There's another one that's on Netflix, which is called Murder Among the Mormons, which is actually about murder. So it's not like a, it doesn't have humor to it, really. Uh, There's a few things where it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty funny. But it's about this, um, this uh, case in Salt Lake City back in the 80s, 
where, um, it's, it's like, oh man, I almost don't want to say too much about what really happened because I don't want to spoil the documentary for anybody who might want to turn it on. But, um, it starts out similarly to Lula Rich where Murder Among the Mormons will start off where it's like this story about, um, this document that surfaced that the, the, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that the leadership like had arranged to purchase this thing and it could really have some very strange implications for the the early origins of the church but then at the end of the first episode and into the second one it takes these turns where it's like okay this isn't just about this document this is about like murder and forgery and all kinds of other stuff it, like it takes these really crazy twists and turns too. And I think that's where, and it's, that one's only three episodes. And, um, but I think like just similarly structured where it's like, you start off thinking you're watching a story that's, that's one thing. And then like through very skillful filmmaking and editing and careful, you know, carefully weaving the, the story, it turns into something completely different and and much more compelling than you really think it's going to be. Well, and and that's the thing. So it becomes this like documentary as as like you say thriller, murder mystery, right? There's there's a big obsession to crime right now, um, both both in podcasts and in in film and uh, and in in these kind of nebulous spaces where you've got these limited series, right? So multiple episodes that. Um, are, are dealing with particular documentary subjects in a different way. And I think that one of the big ones that we have talked about, and I mean, in, even did a bonus episode about, was Tiger King, right? And Tiger King is almost like, it's, it shows how compelling these sorts of stories are and how potentially exploitative they are. Um, because Tiger King, like, you know, and I think the Tiger King was in some ways helped by the pandemic it, it became this thing that people latched onto because it was like this is something that's wild and crazy and that i can watch and i don't need to think about what's going on in the world right because this is so bizarre and and out the window but i mean it's a it's a the original series is hideously compelling um it's fascinating to watch and even there comes a point in in that series where i'm like this is this feels wrong I feel wrong watching this, you know, this, it feels trashy at some level. And it is, I mean, because it's a trashy subject in a lot of ways. Um, but it's very well made and very, uh, very compelling to, to view. And so then you get into like the actual human re repercussions of these kinds of films, you know, what are, what is the aftermath of, of these, of telling these stories? Um, how does this, you know, affect real human beings? Because you're talking about real human beings. You're not talking about characters on screen. You're talking about actual people. And I think that that's always the the tension when it comes to um, when it comes to documentary filmmaking, is that at some point we have to note and we have to embrace the fact that we are watching the lives of real people. Yeah, absolutely, and. There is definitely a fine line between learning about people's stories and reading their stories and becoming basically a voyeur and um, sort of getting too involved. Like, um, 
like with what happened in the aftermath of Tiger King with some of the people that were involved in that. Like some of like I mean, what's his face? Not uh not the Tiger King himself, but the guy who ended up taking over his park. Uh yeah. Like yeah. he was getting all kinds of just crazy um like messages and and letters and stuff from people like attack like attacking him and stuff and it's just like okay you just watched his movie like you gotta understand there's probably a lot more of the story that you don't know and why are you putting yourself into the narrative here <laughs> you know it's like people get people get so wrapped up in and too involved sometimes in in these stories it's easy to do um, because we see someone that is a real person and we just you know, decide that what we're seeing is, is the sum total of who they are. Well, and, and just to, to go off of that a little bit, um, I've, I've been watching Only Murders in the Building. Oh, um, yes. Right, which is about, it's completely fictional, right? <laughs> yes. But it's about a true crime podcast, creating uh -huh. a true crime po podcast. <laughs> and one of the things that was interesting is that we have, so I've been watching this show, this show, which is a, which is a fictional show about, a fictional crime about that is being treated as a true crime right within right. the world of the show and how those things you know it it turns into this like you know is this okay that what we're doing you know there's there's even one line in the in the latest episode we're just like we're forgetting that these are real people mm -hmm. right this is an actual person this isn't a murder mystery that we're watching on television this is a real human being who has died and who has family and friends and people that cared about them. Um, and, and it is an interesting commentary, I think, on this obsession with true crime, on this obsession with, with documentary, literally. Um, and it, it's particularly interesting to watch this show in light of the recent uh, stuff about Gabby Petito yeah. and the discovery of her body and the way in which this was turned into, right, this almost true crime podcast investigation that there were amateur detectives who were like, oh, well, it's definitely, the, you know, this is definitely what happened. And it's like, these are real human beings. Mm -hmm. you know, these are real human beings. But at the same time, yeah, we're using them for entertainment. Yeah. And documentary, I think there's always that tension that whatever mm -hmm. we're watching, whether it's about a person, whether it's just about a landscape and the, the changing world, whether it's environmental, et cetera, these are this is reality right these are real people these are real animals real something that you know isn't that we we are using to entertain ourselves right yeah and we have to be very careful with that yeah and and again to go back to that issue of, of critics right of being critical about it you mm -hmm. do have to i think divorce yourself like you were saying divorce yourself from your personal feelings right. about one thing one you know person celebrity concept etc and and really look at what the documentary is saying what they're not saying right who are they not talking to um who is not getting their voice heard uh and and you know and thing things like we we discussed a couple of weeks ago about the roadrunner documentary the manipulation that went into, you know, craft re redoing Anthony Bourdain's voice. Mm -hmm. um, and, and at the end of the day, all documentaries are manipulative at some level because there is that desire to evoke this empathetic reaction, this emotional reaction, because it's a film, it is a piece of entertainment. 
Um, it might have a point behind it, but it is something that we're watching to be entertained by, right? To, to get something out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about last year's, um, sorry. Ooh. Drag races on the freeway. That's fun. <laughs> um, but I think about like last year's Oscar winner for documentary feature, which was my octopus teacher which a lot of people had feelings about, understandably so. And that is definitely 100% a film that is all about emotion. That's, that's all it's about. It's, you know, it's this guy, this middle-aged man, middle-aged white man, telling a story about how this, you know, coming in contact with this octopus on a, just a casual dive, ended up changing his life. And that worked for a lot of people obviously it won an oscar but it it really was not because the the man himself was particularly compelling it was because the images were so beautiful and because the music really you know works and and so i i saw people getting really angry that it was doing so well with awards and that it ended up winning and i personally it was not my personal choice for the oscar either i think there were some better films in that lineup but I think that people got so caught up in being annoyed at this you know middle-aged white man that they didn't stop to look at what the film itself really was and what it was um like the the art of the filmmaking and that that was what really connected with voters not this you know middle-aged white man in a in a you know midlife crisis yeah. Well, and, and I think that that's part of it. You know, what is the intention? Is the intention mm -hmm. to show a, a nice story, you know, to, to show beautiful images? And if so, if that is the intention of the film, then it's doing a good job. It's doing yeah. its job, right? If the intention is to talk about the impact of, uh, of you know, divers on the environment that's a completely different story right and it definitely right? did not accomplish that <laughs> yeah and so that and that's obviously not its intention so i i think that and it's hard always to parse out in any film intentionality you know mm -hmm. what is this supposed to do but as we talked about with genre last week there are certain things that we can identify and be like this is what it, it's doing really well based upon what i think it's supposed to be doing Right. Yeah. This isn't supposed to be, you know, a deep, a deep psychological investigation of a man's uh, suffering. Right. This right. is supposed <laughs> to be a, a sweet story about, you know, emotional growth as a result of an octopus. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and if that's what it's supposed to be, then that's what it's doing really well. And it's beautiful. Sorry. But no matter what your personal feelings are on the story, it is gorgeous to look at especially like in hd the colors are just so vibrant the way that they incorporate music and stuff like as a piece of filmmaking it is a beautiful artistic film oh, i still haven't seen it i need i do <laughs> i would like to see it just because i like i like octopi um i think they're really interesting bizarre little creatures they're like so mm -hmm. far removed from us yeah from like the way that they like even the way that their brains work is mm -hmm. so completely different. Like we don't understand them and they don't understand us. I know and I um, love it. 
Yeah, it's, I think it's really cool. There, there's, this is a good segue because I wanted to, to finish off with talking about what we've been watching. But um, one of the things that I've been watching is actually a documentary, but it, this is a different kind of documentary because it is a dramatized conversation, basically. Um, this is a film called I Want to Talk About Dura, which uh, comes from the French film director Claire Simon. She um, has makes both fictional and, and documentary films, and this one kind of melds the two of them together. And, uh, and this has been getting a lot of good buzz and everything. One of the reasons for that is that it's based on transcripts of, um, of tapes from a 1982 interview. Um, between uh, Andrea and a journalist, uh, Michel Manceau, who is, um, was doing interviews with him about his relationship with Marguerite de Ra, the French experimental um, filmmaker and, and uh, novelist. And so the entire film is basically this dramatization of these transcripts, the word for word transcripts. Um, of this conversation about Marguerite Duras and about this relationship. And a lot of it is, is very much about not just specifically the relationship, but about falling in love with art and falling in love with literature because part of what he expresses in, in his love, eventual, like a literal, literal relationship with Marguerite Duras, but the way that he comes to that is via this obsession with her work and this sense that reaching across you know text and film is something that is touching him very deeply so this person he's never met initially right that he's never had any contact with is embeds herself in him so deeply and that it, this eventually turns into an actual romantic and physical relationship and becomes much more complicated in, over the course of time. I think what's interesting about this is that it's, it's very much presented as a documentary, but it's quite obviously two actors portraying these people, but speaking their words. Um, and so it, it kind of straddles a really interesting line because it's not a biopic, it's not really a fiction film, but it's also not a documentary because this is not the actual people. There are, um, there, there, they do use archival footage of Marguerite Durant and, uh, and some of the things that she said and, uh, and some of her films, but a lot of it really is just this dialogue between these two people. And it's, I think that it works for the most part, it's, it's a really fascinating exercise regardless. Um, and it does kind of sit on that line of like, what really is this? Is this fiction? Is this documentary? Is this biopic? You know, what is it? And, and I honestly don't know. I don't know what I would call it. That sounds really great. I want to watch it. But it's, it's very interesting. It's show, yeah, it's showing at um, uh, the New York Film Festival. And I, you know, I'm certain it's going to get picked up by, by streamers, et cetera. It's been receiving a lot of really good buzz so um, i definitely check it out uh, if you get a chance to awesome so i wanted to close out with um you know what have we been watching what have you been watching karen you know it's funny because this week i didn't really get to watch a lot i did finish uh nine perfect strangers still don't know if i like it or not i thought <laughs> you know depending on how it ends that will be my decision but I finished it and it ended and I still don't know. So, <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's probably not something I'll ever think about again, so it didn't really leave like a huge lasting impact, but I'm also glad I watched it because I did enjoy seeing like Melissa McCarthy and, uh, you know, uh, Regina Hall is really good in it. And there's some other, it was really Michael Shannon, man. He, he is very, very good. He gives such a good performance and getting to see him as kind of this softer, um, more tragic, I guess, person. Like he's, he's Mm -hmm. really hurting and suffering and seeing him play that. He just did such a a great job. So it's like the performances are really good. I'm really still not sure what Nicole Kidman's doing exactly, but (laughs) anyway, (laughs) it was just kind of, eh, I'm glad I watched it, but I probably will never watch it again or, or even really think about it much, but that's okay. And then, um, I'm actually a week behind on, uh, only murders in the building, but I do enjoy that one. It's a lot of fun, and of course, <laughs> what we do in the shadows. The new big thing that I watched this week, though, was um, Oscar Farhadi's new film, A Hero, which is um, probably going to be in the lineup for international feature because his films tend to get chosen by his country of Iran. Um, as they should. He's a he's a really great filmmaker. And so this new film, A Hero, is about this man, Rahim, who has been in prison for a couple of years because of a debt that he was unable to pay back. And there's a lot of, of story behind the, how this debt happened and why he's not able to pay it back. But anyway, the point is that he's in prison and it catches up with him where he's on a two-day leave. And he has this opportunity to um, have some money that he can use to pay down his debt. And then his brother-in-law is going to basically um, put himself on the hook for the rest. And they're trying to make this deal with the creditor who just keeps rejecting it. And then, um, and then something happens. I, I, it's one of those where it's like, the less you know going in, the better I think the experience is. I didn't know anything about what this was when I started watching it. I didn't look up the the synopsis or anything. I just knew Osgar Farhadi, and I was in. Um, so I don't want to say too much, but it definitely goes to some places that are are unexpected, but very... It feels, it feels natural. It feels like, yeah... This is probably what would happen next. And it was interesting to watch it um, the night before Dear Evan Hansen was opening because this story at its core is also about a guy who becomes sort of a social media um, viral sensation. And due to some uh, misunderstandings and wrong interpretations of some things, and um and it deals with the aftermath of that and i feel like it, i haven't seen the dear evan hansen movie but i have seen the play and i feel like this movie handles the, handles that type of situation much better and much more realistically than dear evan hansen does so anyway so, it's great so i'm not surprised <laughs> you know. know anyway yeah, sounds good. it's really good Sounds good. Yeah. They, I mean, I've, I've been watching a whole bunch of different things. I actually watched Arachnophobia for the first time. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> yesterday. And that was, I, 
I, I was like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not afraid of spiders particularly. I'm, I'm not a fan. Like, I'm not like, oh yay, I want tons of spiders around me, but I'm not particularly frightened of them. This does a really good job of being like, oh no, creepy crawl. Like there were definitely- <laughs> Spiders couple, are the worst. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were a couple of times where I was like, nope, nope, absolutely, no, ah, uh-uh, no. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I really liked it. I, I liked don't it. want to meet the monster who can watch arachnophobia and not feel creeped out. <laughs> there, there are just some of those, some of those scenes where I'm just like, no, uh, uh-uh, that's not a thing that I'm going to look at. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a good film. It's on Amazon prime. People can watch it. Uh, it's, it's very entertaining. It's funny. John Goodman is, is there as like the best exterminator in the world. I fucking loved him. I loved him uh, so much. Like that, that entire film is just a lot of fun, I, I have to say, so. <laughs> it's a good kind of easing into spooky season. Um, so I think that that is going to close us out. We, we do have a bonus episode coming up. We do. <laughs> which has been in a neck and neck race. I think that it is still tied as, as of this recording, but we're going to know at the end of the day, uh, which film has won. I, I have a feeling that we're actually going to wind up recording two episodes. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, because I had, I did not know people really like two of the films that are on our poll, obviously. I mean, I'm not surprised that they like them. I'm just surprised that they are that committed to us doing both of them. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys are asking for it. Like, you obviously just want to hear our thoughts on these films. Um, I don't argue with it. Like, I think that they're great films, too. I, I very much look forward to talking about them. Mm-hmm. Um but so so those episodes are going to be coming up pretty soon and in order to listen to at least one of them uh you want to join our patreon patreon.com slash citizen dame wasn't that a good segue uh and of course we are very very grateful to our our current patrons uh who include adriana ali heather james kathleen cariata mason matt Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us and continuing to support us. Um, We hope to keep on bringing more bonus episodes and more fun stuff pretty soon. Uh, We do like doing those bonus episodes. So I I think that this this time around, it's going to be a lot of fun. Like we we chose some good films. Um, Please, you know, if if you're able to join our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash citizen dame. You can also throw us a couple of dollars um, if you don't want to make the Patreon commitment, co-fi.com slash citizen dame. We do still have stuff on our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. Um, and of course, go to our website. There will be some reviews for New York Film Festival coming up. Um, I've got a couple more things that I want to write that like about Suspiria, actually, because I've been thinking about that film again, the 2018 film. So hopefully going to get get that up in time for spooky season. Nice. Um, that's citizendamepod.com. And of course, you can get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Citizendamepod at gmail.com is our email address. We are on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and a letterbox where we have exciting lists and things that are attached to this episode. Going to try to put up some great documentary films that we talked about today. And that's at citizendamepod. Oh, no, sorry. Our letterbox is at citizendame. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, too many confusing things. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And of course you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? 
I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. So get in touch with us. Let us know what you think and uh, shoot us some questions, comments. We enjoy it. Just, you know, try to be nice. We aren't that intimidating. Uh, and we will talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> Mario! It's a me, Mario! Woohoo! Let's go! Okie dokie! Ow, 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 ow,